0: I'm Rachel Quedno, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upsound, the show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strongtown's conversation, and we Upsound it. We talk about it in depth. As you can probably tell, I am not Abby Kinney. Your usual host is busy taking a professional examination this week. Um, Send her some good vibes. Wish her luck. So I'm Rachel Quedno, program director at Strong Towns. You might know me from my other show, The Bottom Up Revolution podcast. And Abby has graciously allowed me to sub in and host in her place this week. And my guest today is also not your usual guest, Chuck Marone. Instead, I'm joined by John Reuter, a longtime board member and supporter of Strong Towns. How are you doing, John? I am well. It is great to be here with you. Yeah. What have you been up to lately? Brief summary. I know your life is very busy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I have a dog named Franklin. And if you have a dog, particularly if he's this particular dog, that basically becomes your life. It's, it's work, play with dog, eat, sleep, you know. But that's actually a pretty good life. And I guess the other thing I do is, is read some articles from time to time so I can talk with them, with uh, you and others.
0: Yeah. So before we get into the article today, I want to share with our listeners that it is our member week at Strong Towns. Thank you to every supporting Strong Towns member out there. You guys make all this work possible. If you have listened to this podcast and it has inspired you to do anything in your city, volunteer, talk to your neighbors, or just think differently about the challenges and issues in your community, um, that is what we're here for. So if you want more of that and you want to make your role in this movement official support this show and all that good stuff, please become a member of Strong Towns today. Visit strongtowns.org slash membership. Um, John, I know that the Strong Towns movement has played an important role in your life too. And that's why you give your time and donations to this work as a Strong Towns member. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you. It is, it is such a pleasure to support the work that you're doing and Chuck and the rest of the team are doing to actually advance Strong Towns across the country. It's just something that's been personally very meaningful to me to watch how this movement's grown and the people have come there. And as we've seen policy changes, I always think about that map of cities that have removed their uh, parking requirements, which is a major thing that we push for. That actually helps like land use go to more effective uses and improves the quality of life and makes cities more walkable by stop having so much space being wasted with parking. And, uh, and just that map that shows how it's spread across the country and how that's really corresponded to the strong towns movement growing. And that's one example of many of how this movement is changing the country for the better and really changing how our places are built and having them be built for the long term and to actually last. i always am a fan of these uh, of these membership weeks too. Uh, it was probably the first time that I came in connection. I had sent a, uh, a sent a praise to Chuck years ago when, when Strong Towns was really just a blog and it got used as one of our blurbs for our first uh, uh, ever, although it was before I even, <laughs> before we even touched membership drives. And so, uh, you know, that convinced me. I'm like, oh yeah, now you're just coming back to me talking about how this was important for me personally as a small town city councilman. I guess I better donate and uh, I hope others will uh, join me again this year as I once again uh, send what I can to help uh, help us build this movement.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much, John. Thanks to everyone who is a member of Strong Towns. All right. So let's get to the topic for today, which is bike lash. An article in The Guardian by Jeanette Sadiq Khan and Seth Solomanov was entitled, The Bike Lash Paradox, How Cycle Lanes Enrage Some But Win Votes. Just a brief summary. It's about how bike lane projects tend to draw a lot of ire from residents But ultimately, once they are in place, residents realize that they actually like their community when it's more people-centered, a little less car-centered, and even they often vote to re-elect those local leaders who implemented the bike projects in the first place. Here is one of the choice quotes from the article. This was from Giuseppe Sala, who was recently re-elected mayor of Milan, Italy, and uh, this mayor says, it's easy to argue about parking, but it's difficult to dispute a new city filled with people and with signs of life, commerce, and a sustainable purpose where there was nothing before. The article includes examples from Paris, Barcelona, London, and other cities that are consistently seeing this pattern of adding bike infrastructure and then watching the, probably the mayor who led the bike infrastructure project get reelected. Just one more favorite quote from the article. This one was from the person who wrote the article, who writes, "Um, voters consistently remind us that it is they and not the pundits, tweeters, or headline writers who decide elections. Um, I think we've all seen a lot of headlines and angry tweets about whatever new project is being proposed in a city. And then when it comes down to it, people might actually like that project if you uh, survey a wide group of people. So I think we could probably do a whole separate conversation on that topic alone, but um, I'm going to pause there. John, what was your take on this bike lash article?
1: Well, I think it's just such a common example of what we hear with the various types of NIMBY, not in my backyard, activists, right? Where they're, they're small, they're active, they'll show up and oppose something, whether that's a Bike lane, or whether that's removing parking requirements, or whether that's actually um, a positive uh, rezoning that's going to allow a site to be reused, we see this happen all the time. And there is a presumption that these loud voices speak for the community as a whole. And what we find out is not only do they not represent. Community sentiment in the terms of the fact that other people just aren't nearly as worried, but also they don't represent the community, even in the fact that the community may even have the opposite perspective, right? And that's where this article really gets at. Now, the point isn't that we can just ignore people who show up to public hearings, because I'll tell you what, you also heard the same thing where people opposing a fi- freeway going through the middle of their city um, or middle of their town and community um, will say, hey, this isn't a good deal for us, and they'll get ignored all the time, despite the fact that they actually represent what people think. And so I think this just shows two things. One, that building strong towns and approaches strong towns is actually popular and mayors have, who have, who have un, undertook these kind of projects um, that actually build a more positive place actually are rewarded for it despite those who wanted to claim, you boy, everyone's pissed off. But the second thing that they show us is the need to have better community engagement processes that don't just privilege those voices. And one of the interesting things about these voices is like who tends to be the people saying those things, and who tends to have the time to be able to take off work or uh, or be able to show up to a hearing after uh, you know at night or in the day or whenever they hold these things. Right? I mean, the real need to like change the way that we do public engagement to make sure we're actually hearing from the community because that disconnect I think is really fascinating. The other thing that I think it shows, just if I can monologue one more moment here, uh, I think the other thing that it shows that's so positive is that when you make concrete physical improvements to the built environment, people see it and appreciate it, right? And so there's this real need to not just get lost in ideology or in, you know, or in just like in, in philosophizing, but actually looking to make physical improvements to make sure those are realized and the people are able to experience those positive changes in their towns. So and we should really look for that. And, and, and the way that most happens, right, is not by trying to pitch these big grand projects that will take forever, but really looking forward to the small incremental things you can do so people can start to experience the positive change of the policies we're suggesting.
0: I think you're absolutely right that like any new change in a city can be set up as like a boogeyman that like, oh, you know, new apartments, new bike lanes, whatever. It's going to change everything. It's going to ruin everything. Um, That's like a very easy stance to take. And I think it's very easy to oppose change and new things. Um, So maybe NIMBYs have like a pretty easy job. But then when you actually see the new apartment or the new bike lanes, yeah, you realize, oh, this number one, this wasn't that big of a deal. And number two, I actually really like Uh, the way my city feels now. Um, Now that like the project is like the construction phase is over and I can just see it in real time. I think especially bike lanes, it was an interesting observation in this article that um, it's not just like, oh, now I can bike if I'm a person that bikes a lot. But it was like, oh, now the street is quieter. You know, cars aren't driving so fast. There's all these like side effects of putting bike lanes in. It just like makes the city feel more people centered. Um, I love that.
1: I think that's what it really gets at, right, is, is, is that the actual experience of being in that place changes in a way that people can actually feel and recognize that that change is taking place, uh, right? And it actually physically actually changes it. You know, I think some of the kind of we I would take for granted is, of course, that when we're talking about the built environment, um, the physicalness actually changes. But the reality is when we just talk about this stuff, we often don't get to experience or see it, right? Oftentimes it's just like, oh, well, here's some, here's a map that shows some things on it. Here are some, you know, here's the public hearing period of time here. It's all very technical. It's all inaccessible. It's all hard to see or understand. So I think there's also that piece about it is that the opposition comes early. The appreciation often doesn't it doesn't exist pre ahead of time. It actually follows the project. So thinking about how can you show the impact of a project in advance is really valuable. What does that mean in concrete terms, right? I think about things like, you know, grell urbanism, where you actually go out and like try to actually represent the bike lane in advance or try to actually show what it, how a street can be reshaped. It's how can we actually create like models that people can play with to see how the street might change, right? It's going out and actually like physically doing things. This is all like a major theme of of books of classic texts, like a pattern language, which really talks about this idea of actually taking people to a site when you're designing a building and actually going out and and, trying to actually work on the site and try to like actually play with string and stuff and scope out where things might be and understand it in a physical way, right? So these are the kind of tools that I think that this, there's a lesson here about politics and lesson about like pushing through and not giving in to people and the initial like public backlash you might experience and realizing that doesn't actually represent people, but also an insight about a greater focus needed on thinking about some of those tactics that we've had now for decades uh, to figure out how to make these changes real for people, so we can have that positive feedback happen faster.
0: Yeah, and that whole idea of like actually trying something out, letting people experience it—often that's a tactical urbanism type project. That's really something that we advocate at Strong Towns as being incorporated into the community engagement, public engagement processes, which I think isn't always like that, that doesn't have a direct correlation, I think, in your mind, like you think public engagement, that's do a meeting, do a presentation listen to some people comment, and then be done with it. But yeah, for us at Strong Towns, the way we advocate doing public engagement is like, we've got our four-step process, observe where people struggle, think about that smallest thing you can do to address that struggle, and then just do it and see how it goes. And then engage with people and ask them like, okay, does this bike lane work for you? If not, let's move it. Um, does this street feel safer now? Um, if not, let's figure out how to make it better. So I think you bring up an important point that the testing things out is a valuable way to get feedback on whether something is benefiting your city or not.
1: Yeah. And you know, when I was, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I really, when I first came connected with Strong Towns. It was when I was a small town city councilman in a, uh, in North Idaho, uh, Sandpoint, and uh, this was a pretty common phenomenon of having the people who were who were upset show up and tell us that they were upset. And so, I was just tricky as an elected official again because you need to think about like, okay, am I hearing the most loud and upset people, or am I hearing a representative sample of people? Just you know, which one is it here? It, it can be difficult. It can be difficult to tell because the numbers of people who show up don't necessarily reflect the population as a whole, <laughs> even if it, you know, whether it's small or a big crowded thing. It just tells you how many people are really angry, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how many people are happy about something. It, it's just a really challenging place. And I think this this article says, look, go out and actually look and think about the impacts of these projects. And I guess that's what I would say too. And this is part of that whole incremental thing there too that helps you see what the impact and get a feedback loop, but also go out and walk the street, go out and walk the place, go knock on some doors and talk to people, right? Find ways to change how to be understood. I think that's like the real key insight into this is that need to, again, I I mean, I keep circling back around here, but I'm hopefully adding some new times each time I retread that same territory of the kinds of tactics that can change our understanding of where is the public really at. And then that's the other thing I would say is I, I hear so many folks in communities just feeling really discouraged. Right about strong towns. I also hear a lot of folks who are really excited, but I also hear folks who are like feel like they're really alone. Um, and they go to meetings and they're the only one advocating for a bike lane or for a change. And what I what I want them to know and I want them, what I want them to get from an article like this is you're not alone, actually. There is a large group, a majority in most places that agrees with you. And we've seen it happen repeatedly in the political process that when leaders step up and take strong towns actions, they're actually politically rewarded for it. And I want you to know as an advocate um, that you're representing a huge number of people in your community, even if you're not the majority in the room, or even if you're one of those solo voices, people want what you're advocating for. It's not some fringe position, um, regardless of what some engineer might tell you. You're actually speaking up for like the needs of people in communities. And when these concrete changes happen, people appreciate it and they will.
0: Yeah, well said. So this article asks the question at the end, is the war against bike lanes finally over? What do you think, John? No. No, it is not over. Okay. That's what I thought as well. I wish it was over. I don't think it's over. Cuz also realistically, I mean everything that we've been talking about today is that like the creation of bike lanes is happening incrementally over time. Like nobody's plopping down a bike lane on every single street in a city cuz there's no need for that frankly. So, yeah. Unfortunately, every time a new one is proposed, there's potentially space for for opposition and sometimes that's warranted and there's a good good discussion to happen so no i don't think the war is over but i feel like the conversation is changing i don't know you're in seattle uh that's probably a place with plenty of bike lanes right although you guys have hills too so maybe not the most bikeable city
1: i feel like seattle does have a lot of bike lanes downtown but but seattle is the uh is the land of the chero right in some ways and then I think it just depends a lot of traffic calming, a lot of like mini traffic circles. I don't think I've even write the right phrase for it, but you know little plots of things in the middle of the otherwise normal intersection that slow traffic down to to some degree, although really, I just feel like they are helping train cars on how to be good at navigating optical courses some of the time. But I think the reality, I mean, even if you look at New York City, um, right, this is the former commissioner for transportation who wrote this article that we're talking about today. Um, even if you look in New York City, a very pedestrian-friendly city, perhaps the most pedestrian-friendly city, arguably, um, you still see resistance. Now, it's also because there's such limited road space there, right? But you still see resistance to bike lanes there and these same kind of vocal oppositions. And so I think the reality is, is that opposition is not going to dis- disappear. It's going to stay with us. What hopefully we can help people understand is the, and I think that's why she wrote the article, right, is the necessity of people beginning to realize that those voices well loud um, and forceful and frequent um, are not as numerous when it comes down to a proportion of the population as politicians may think, right? And so that's really the purpose of this editorial is serving, is reminding people that the actual political reality may not match the, uh, the illusion of opposition that they're seeing in some of these public settings, and these meetings, and the initial kind of bike clash that, uh, that experiences thought through. The other thing I'll say, though, is, and this is one of the other things we know, right, is bike lanes create a new constituency. And what do I mean by that? When you can put in particularly a protected bike lane, when you can make it feel safer to actually ride your bike we know that new people will start riding their bikes right the same thing is true with pedestrian routes when we create better safer easier ways to walk from places more people walk places the same thing is true right with uh, with cars When we create wider roads, what do we do? We induce demand, right? We've all heard about this phenomenon by now, I suspect, or at least many of us have, that when you actually widen roads, more cars will show up and they'll fill all that capacity. What you're doing is actually encouraging more people to drive their cars. Well, guess what? You can induce demand when it comes to bicycles too. If you make safe easy routes for people to travel by bicycle you will have more bicyclists you actually build the political uh, force that you need to actually drive change so I think this is the other dynamic here that we haven't talked about that's so useful to think about is you build a bunch of road infrastructure you'll create more drivers you'll create more people who vote and think and advocate like drivers you build more bicycle lanes you build more bicy- pedestrian infrastructure you create it easier to like and walk and bike you will build the next generation of advocates and voters and supporters who bike and walk and care about that way of getting around so there is some self-fulfillingness to this that, that, that I think, you know, I talked a lot about like getting the actual true opinion of the, of the community, and I do believe that's true, but also there's a way that these uh, transportation improvements, that actually having a walking and biking infrastructure in your community actually creates the constituency for the improvements that just happened. It actually induces that support, um, which I think is pretty cool. But it's also always ended up with such a car centric politics that's pretty destructive. But the good news is, is that we take away and replace that car centric infrastructure with infrastructure that helps us get around more easily on our own two feet and by bicycle and other methods um, that are more traditional and don't waste the same amount of space that actually will economically pay off for our communities. Uh, we will build the commu- will we'll build the political consistency necessary for those to move forward. So that, that kind of makes sense how I'm putting those things together. I, I think it's kind of a novel thought to think about inducing bicycle demand, even though we talk about it with cars all the time.
0: Yeah, totally. That's a very astute way to put it. And actually, my colleague Daniel wrote an article about induced bicycle demand a few weeks ago, too. So we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. All right, John, let's switch to the down zone now. This is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been watching, reading, listening to. What has been on your radar lately?
1: I kind of buried the lead in some way of things that I've been up to, although it's been so long now, I feel like it's, uh, it's long enough that it wasn't what I'm doing right now. Um, but recently, my mother and I took a trip overseas, our first trip since the beginning of the pandemic, um, to Paris, where we went to see Christo, an artist that I love, wrap um, the Arc Triomphe there. He's my mother's favorite artist and coincidentally mine too. I'm sure that had nothing to do with the fact that she had all of his books um, lying around the house growing up for me to look through and flip through and show us documentaries about him and such. My mother is a uh, is an artist and an art historian and teacher. So anyway, not, not that surprising that she adopted this. So ever since I got back, I am just obsessively looking back through these books of all these things that Christo did. And you know, one of the cool things about Christo, I love to connect these things together because I can't just can't help myself. One of the things, cool things about Christo is he's a bit of an incremental artist. And what do I mean by that? It's that Christo started small, so he had these big dreams of doing these big things of uh, you know wrapping these giant monuments. And uh, he did the the gates in New York City that people some may know these that the filled Central Park um, and wrapped buildings and has uh, and has created pathways and uh, between uh, islands and wrapped islands in Miami with with cat fabric and then these big things across caverns. All this large scale work. Um, but before he did that, he did all these small scale works. He did these small scale wrapping of a chair, for example. And, and tried these things out with other smaller objects to start testing these ideas and to understand the kind of silhouettes and ideas that he wanted to have it. So there you have an incremental artist at work who really thought about and built on his work over a lifetime. Christo actually passed away li- last year. Um, so we didn't get to see this. This, is, this will be his final uh, temporary work, which was always known about. The other thing I love about Christo, um, just to say one more thing about this, is that Christo believed that part of what made art powerful was its interaction with people and what people brought to the artwork. And so to him, the interaction between people and these large-scale landscape work that he did was part of what the work meant. And I've always thought about Christo when I think about cities and how we design cities because I think for too long we've designed cities in these black boxes of stats and numbers and engineers sitting down and trying to figure out the math of how do we move a car. And I think our cities would be better the more we think about how they actually interact with people and that cities really come alive through people. And what we want is a cityscape actually filled with people and activity. And that's one of the things I've always loved is that when you look at Christo's drawings of these works, his preparatory drawings for them, you always see people walking by. You always see the city alive it's never just about a solitary object. It's always about that interaction and that connection and that conversation. And we need more of that in just the regular architecture we do every day and the regular streetscapes we build every day. We need more of an understanding and appreciation of how people bring spaces alive. And the purpose is to actually have spaces with and for people in that interaction um, and not merely a place that sits uh, timeless and unaltered. Without connection. So anyway, that was that was my big inspiration recently, and what I'm still obsessed with, and still I'm actually was just thinking about this because the book's open to me right next to me here, of uh, looking back at some of his other projects and work over the years.
0: Nice, and what a fun trip that must have been too. I'm guessing you had to eat some awesome food in France.
1: We definitely ate some awesome food, but honestly, the most most meaningful part of it was to go with my mother. I'm I'm one of. Uh, Three boys. I'm the middle, which means there was always either an older or a younger kid around throughout the time I spent with my mother. So this is the first time that my mother and I ever went on a trip, just the two of us, um, in my entire life. And with my mother as an artist, and as someone who just as, as art has mattered so much to her, to go see the crystal was amazing. But there was also this moment where we're just in a museum, and we're, it was my mother's first time in Paris ever. And so we're in uh, we're in a museum together, and she's looking at these old impressionistic pictures and uh, uh, post-impressionist paintings. And abstract work, uh, which was very meaningful and shaped her own work and her own thoughts about life, and just standing there and reflecting her on some of these pieces was just one of those deep things of understanding how your parents have been shaped and what shaped them. And of course, she's had an tremendous impact on me. But just understanding the, these big ideas that have shaped her just gave me a new appreciation of these ideas and these this, this work, but also of my mother and my relationship to her. So it was really uh, one of those life-changing moments that happens there that I definitely will always treasure.
0: That is lovely. My down zone item to share is that I've been going through a book recently called bet the farm, uh, the dollars and cents of growing food in America, which is by Beth Hoffman, uh, published by Island press. I love reading about food and growing food. Um, but this book is pretty unique compared to some of the like kind of food memoirs I've read, because as the title says, like, it's all about actually saying like, uh, how is can farming actually be financially viable? And you know most family farms in America are making such a small amount of money and yet like they're still there. Um, so how can we like make this more financially viable? What's actually the math behind growing food? Um, and that feels like a really central thing to strong towns. It's one of the things we have on our strength test. you know if you could only eat local food, Uh, for a month, would you be able to survive on that? In Most places, that's not the case. And we're like really disconnected from our food systems. So that's been an interesting read. I'm not quite done yet. But I guess this is a plug because I'm going to have the author on my Bottom Up Revolution podcast in a couple weeks. So tune in if you want to hear more about that.
1: That's really cool. And I highly recommend, I highly recommend two things as we wrap up here. One is go and check out Uh, Rachel's show, The Bottom-Up Revolution, great show of actually hearing real people doing real things um, to build strong towns. And then also take your own action to build a strong town right now, your own bottom-up action. Definitely take an action in your community to do that, but also re-up your membership. Uh, Become a member for the first time. Join us and join this movement beyond listening to these podcasts, beyond reading the site. Actually join up here and uh, become a member during this member week with us here as well as we continue to push this forward together and this work together across the country.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I forgot to mention, but there's going to be a special exclusive sticker just for 2021 Strong Towns members. So that's a little extra motivation to uh, join very soon here. All right. You can do that at strongtowns.org membership.
1: I also want to add if enough of us join, if enough of us keep working together, maybe we really will end the war on bike lanes.
0: Amen. Let's do it. Okay. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, Thanks for letting me be your guest host today and just appreciate your listenership and your membership support. And thank you, John, for
1: being the guest. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure as always.